Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Miriam Baer, professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. We'll be discussing her article, Compliance Elites, which is forthcoming in the Fordham Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes. Miriam, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. Miriam, to set the stage for this conversation, could you sketch at a high level what is the corporate compliance function, what role does it play in the modern firm, and who manages that role and that function? So we often think of this function as uh, the location of where we place all of our sort of responsibility in educating employees on what is the law and also proactively both diagnosing circumstances that would promote lawbreaking, diagnosing instances of lawbreaking, figuring out ways to remedy lawbreaking. In other words, it's sort of this uber function that's supposed to be sort of internally looking through the corporation, figuring out where you have risks for breaking the law, figuring out where you need to educate. Some would say also there's a norm generation function here. In other words, sort of interesting, we call it compliance, right? We don't call it the deterrence function. We don't call it the discipline function, even though there might be discipline built into it. And even though we do want to deter crime, we call it the compliance function, which itself implies that we also want to sort of generate these healthy norms where people will just want to comply anyway, right? That it wouldn't necessarily mean that you're going to have someone looking over you, right? You don't want a panoptic. I don't think anyone actually wants that. And so there's multiple goals that are built into this function. And it's somewhat amorphous. And many people have now started to write about it in terms of who's responsible for it. That's actually discussed in my paper. You know, there's a sort of longstanding debate about where you locate the compliance function within the corporation. So on one hand, we want it to be important. Right? We don't want it to be something that's sort of in a back office somewhere where it's poorly resourced. We want the board, you know, the highest authority, uh, the board of directors to care about it. And in fact, there is an obligation on the board. We often refer to that as the care mark duty to actually make sure not just that it exists, but that they are, you know, that it actually has some teeth or the idea is at least that they're monitoring it to make sure it actually exists and works. Um, even though obviously reasonable people are going to disagree on what it ought to look like. And so we want it to be important, but then from there, there's a lot of debate. For example, should it be a separate function with sort of reporting authority to the board? Sometimes we call it dotted line authority. Do we want it to be a function where the general counsel, right, the chief legal officer is both in responsible for the legal department and also the compliance function. Sometimes the compliance function could be housed within the legal department. There are others that would say, no, it should sort of be separate. So those are sort of longstanding debates. And I sort of come from outside that debate and I say, hey, here's some other thing going on in compliance that I'm interested in. But those are some of the major debates that have occurred over the last, say, two decades. So this is an increasingly important function within the firm. And as you note, there's a lot of debate around where it should be located within the hierarchy of, of the corporate governance structure. But your article, I think, takes it a step further in looking at 
who is tasked with running the function itself. And you note in the article that firms will typically, when they are hiring somebody to have their compliance function, want to hire somebody that you deem elite. First, what do you mean by elite? And second, why are they the folks that firms want to hire to run their compliance functions? So to just put the paper in context, so this paper was part of a symposium on, among other things, sort of corporate lawyering and ethics that was sponsored by Fordham Law School. And so I was struck when I was thinking about what do I want to write about? And I I write about compliance anyway. But the fact that, you know, there have been all these press releases, when you look at some of the major companies that have gotten themselves into trouble, and that's how the paper begins by talking about part of the cruise lines, you know, company gets itself into trouble and eventually has to show that it's buckling down and it really takes compliance seriously. And of course, what does it do? It announces the hire of a new chief compliance officer. And what I had noticed over the years that, you know, these chief compliance officers had pretty uh, snazzy credentials, right, that the company was emphasizing. And so when I spoke about the word elite, now obviously that's a fuzzy term in and of itself, Elite means only, you know, Supreme Court clerks, then no, you're not going to say there's a compliance elite right now. But if you're talking about the idea that there are folks out there that have pretty impressive credentials that we might have even expected from the types of folks who would be competing for what we would think of as elite paying jobs within the legal sector, meaning top law firms, folks who worked in the Department of Justice, people who had high positions within the enforcement divisions of like the top regulatory agencies like the SEC, the EPA. That's what I had in mind, right? That there are folks out there whose resumes look pretty darn impressive. And so I was sort of interested, and I'm not in any way, by the way, suggesting that that is a proxy, you know, a one-for-one proxy for whether or not those attorneys are themselves good. In fact, I'm raising issues with it. And that you can talk about all of the privileges that play a role in how, and certainly others have, there's a whole literature on this, you know, that, that we don't live in a perfect meritocracy. There are all sorts of privileges that play a role in who succeeds. So I'm not in any way challenging that. But I was interested in this change that I think you could kind of see that there was an emergence of both a CCO, Chief Compliance Officer, job out there that pays a lot of money and looks for this kind of person. And then the emergence of such a person, right? And some of that, you know, arises parallel to, and this has been documented, and I cite some of the literature in my paper, for example, the change in even, and this is predates this, the change in the general counsel function, right? 60, 70 years ago, we didn't think about general counsel's office the way we think about the general counsel today. There's also a change even in the white collar criminal world. 30 years ago, if you had looked at any of the top Wall Street law firms, you wouldn't have seen the major white collar, it's often called now white collar corporate investigations practices that many of the top law firms have today. So I was sort of interested in this sort of parallel emergence of this sort of new group of folks out there. I was also thinking about the idea that, look, Thinking about an elite, that's someone who can also walk away from the job, right? Because they are, you know, they have credentials that make them highly desirable to others. And that ability to walk away actually is important because that means you can negotiate for greater resources and power within the firm itself. And so all of that was coming together into this idea that, hey, I think there's some sort of, you know, creme de la creme out there. Firms seem to know it. 
individuals, there's some individuals out there who kind of know it, and we ought to think about it. And we ought to think about what are the good points about this emergence? What does it mean for compliance? How does it improve compliance? You know, everyone's looking at compliance as it matures into an industry. It's a billion-dollar industry, right? What does it mean? And then on the other hand, are there downsides? And then I'm sort of taking a page from, you know, sort of the behavioral ethics literature to think about what are some of the, the negatives of relying on, if you will, elites to solve your compliance problems. So in the paper, you discuss the reasons, and, and you just mentioned a few of them, why a company would want to hire somebody with this elite background as their CCO or head of compliance, as opposed to maybe somebody who worked their way up through the ranks. And interestingly, in the paper, you talk about the role of performance targets and goals and the tension they create between business objectives on one hand and compliance on the other. Could you maybe discuss what that tension might look like and why might elite CCOs or other heads of compliance miss those tensions? And that's, that's something I think you dub as the performance blind spot in the paper. Right. So and before I get to the performance blind spot, right, the good reason why you want maybe or why it's a good idea and why certainly why companies like to emphasize that they've hired an elite into their compliance function is the idea that, well, look, this elite person, A, whatever their credentials show, if you believe the credentials do reflect diligence and intelligence and very good training, it's playing that proxy, but also it's sending some sort of signal. And the idea is it's sending a signal internally to the employees within the company, both those who are law-abiding and those who maybe aren't so law-abiding. So both of those are good signals, meaning, hey, this person takes this seriously, the company takes it seriously, but also sends uh, signals to the outside world, particularly to regulators and prosecutors. So there's that kind of, of signaling going on, and that's why you'd want the elite. But the negative, and that's what the real core argument of the paper is, is what I dubbed this performance blind spot. And what I'm doing is I'm taking a page from Max Bazerman and Ken Brunsell, who've written so well about ethical blind spots. So, okay, the theory of ethical blind spots, and I, I can't do it justice, is among other things, none of us understand our own ethical failings, right? In other words, we always, you know, many of us think we're much more ethical than we actually are, right? We have blind spots and that affects our ability to control ourselves. And it also affects the ability of organizations, right, to control wrongdoing. And so one of the things that I take from Bazerman and Ten Brunsell's work, and I think this is very powerful, is that organizations can act in good faith and put in place you know, rules or policies that they think are going to produce compliance and then have those backfire because people aren't as ethical as they think they're going to be. Well, so uh, taking that idea, it struck me that you could make a similar argument, although you know, this is different, about elites. And, and here's what I meant about performance blind spots. Okay, so take someone who is elite, and if you've defined elite as someone who succeeded and performed very well, to get where you are in the legal world, say you, you know, went to a top law school and then, and then you got a clerkship and then from there you maybe went to a top law firm and, and you were there for a few years. And from there you went to the U.S. attorney's office or and also maybe you became a chief in some unit or eventually headed to the EPA, the SEC, wherever, where you also headed up some sort of enforcement division and then maybe you became a partner in law firm. Notice everything I just described obviously took a lot of hard work, but also was incredibly competitive. In other words, you bested a bunch of metrics and regimes and you performed 
and you always performed well. And the question is, is someone who's always performed well under such high-stakes circumstances likely to recognize the way in which performance regimes, sometimes instead of producing good work and producing success, produce failure? And more importantly, for those who fail, produce distortions and cheating and illegal misconduct. And that's something that I think was really interesting to me, right? Is someone who's always done well and been on the right side of the curve, if you will, going to understand the ways in which goals, and we do know this from, you know, the behavioral and both the performance management literature has a lot on this and this idea of goals gone wild. This is not my idea. This is others who've written of the ways in which, you know, if you think about this also, by the way, accords with how we think about fraud in criminology, right? Why do people engage in fraud? Well, one of the reasons they engage in fraud is because of pressure, right? Because of need. And so if you think about employees who are being judged, it's very common to judge employees through metrics. Uh, If we worry about performance regimes that are either too harsh, too draconian, too competitive, or also that include all sorts of arbitrary cutoffs, what are we worried about? Well, we're worried about that some of those folks are understandably even, right? What are they going to do? They're going to cheat. And maybe they won't cheat right away. Maybe it's this process that many people have so uh, wonderfully described where, you know, you start, and, and this also goes back to 10 Bazerman and 10 Brussels work on the idea of ethical fading, right? In other words, you don't start out by lying a lot. You start out by shading the truth. You start out by making just a little bit of a change in your numbers, by just maybe lying a little bit about something here and there, or maybe by being a little aggressive about what you count. And then over time, you get worse and worse and worse. And so what I was worried about is if you think that part of the compliance function is to act proactively and figure out which are your performance regimes that are overly risky that uh, create more misconduct risk than others, that are under-monitored, that lack oversight. It strikes me as someone who has always performed well might not realize or recognize the misconduct risk inherent in a performance regime. And so in other words, what I worry about is that top CCO, you know, chief compliance officer, the one who's always performed so well. I'm not talking about, obviously, there are going to be certain things that look really bad. So that everyone you're expecting who's acting in good faith is going to catch those kinds of situations. But let's take more ambiguous situations. It's all on the margin after all. Um, What I'm worried is, is that high performing CCO says, well, I always had tough regimes to deal with. I had to take tests. I had to take the bar. I had to do all these things, right? And, And I didn't cheat. And I worry that that person you know, again, it's not quite as blunt as I'm describing it here, but the idea is it's almost like a subconscious kind of thought process that's going to cause you to play down the misconduct risk in regimes, which means you're less likely to proactively identify those regimes that are most in need of change. You're less likely to identify those regimes that if you're going to keep them are most in need of monitoring, right, to monitor for cheating. And as a result, you're also going to be less likely to identify what I refer to as too good to be true performance, right? When someone seems to always hit their targets, it could be because they're really fantastic, just like you, because, hey, I always hit my performance. I'm an elite. But it could also be that they're cheating, right? And I'm worried that that CCO is going to miss all these things. Now, you're going to miss everything? Of course not. But the point is, is if on the margin, you have this blind spot, right? That's what I'm thinking about. These are ways in which, again, it makes a lot of sense to hire the elite 
And yet you could have this backfiring problem for the reasons I described. So let's say that I am a new CCO. Part of my job is to monitor the performance regimes at the company to ensure that they're not leading to violations of law or they're leading to risky things for the business. But I do recognize from listening to this podcast and reading your paper that my experience, my professional experience is very different than the median employee at my company. And I might have these performance blind spots in terms of monitoring the performance uh, systems and uh, setups that we have. How should I, as say a new CCO, go about trying to overcome or recognize where my performance blind spots might be in fulfilling my role in monitoring the performance systems that the company has? No, and I think that's the hardest question, right? So first of all, uh, you know, this is where you want to take a page from some of the debiasing literature. And there's a lot of debate on whether debi in other words, when we know we have biases, well, what can we do? We can try to either debias ourselves or we can try to somehow insulate ourselves, maybe share decision-making with others. Those seem to be the, the two methodologies we know of when we talk about biases. Debiasing yourself of performance blind spots it might be simple enough that you're constantly reminding yourself, well, I did well, is this a performance blind spot? I, I admit that I'm not sure that that works so well. Um, it may be that the sharing of decision-making authority, or at least of finding other ways to, to move away from simple intuition is going to be really important here. And that is one thing that you know is remarkable is even though as compliance matures as an industry, compliance metrics themselves. In other words, how else does the compliance industry judge itself? I think are still in the very early stages, right? So it may be that you, if you are that CCO and you know you have this performance blind spot, that's where you might want to think about ways in which consulting with someone outside the company who can give you better information on performance regimes and, you know, in other words, getting hold, you know, sort of cold data may be valuable. It may also be valuable. And this is where then you mentioned this earlier in our talk. I actually think this is where you want the CCO to make sure that he or she consults with the, what I would call sort of the, the longstanding insider type person. Mm -hmm. You know, this is where it matters who the CCO's staff is. This is where it matters how well the CCO's sort of personal contacts, how deep they are across the firm. And it's helpful to get that kind of, you know, feedback from people who know the firm well and have a sense of what's going on. And that is the other thing I, I will say, there are other tools, right, that might be suggesting to you, uh-oh, I'm not catching this soon enough. So for example, that does show the need for your internal whistleblowing channel. That's another example of why you want to have a good internal whistleblowing hotline, not just to protect yourself from, you know, the SEC when they say, hey, how well were you making sure that, you know, you were staying out of trouble? Did you listen to your own employees when they made complaints? But for the very reason that these kinds of complaints that come over the whistleblowing channel might alert you to a problem within the performance regimes, right? These metrics and issues like that. So I think those are some of the things that I would think are helpful. There's also some question about to what extent is sort of machine learning something that could be complementary and helpful here, although I'm sort of nervous to talk about that because I always worry that with machine learning, it's just at the end of the day, we're the ones programming the machines. It's going to just reflect pretty much our own biases. But I think that's something that could be valuable. With this discussion of compliance elites, you talk about the course of honors that might precede becoming a CCO today, the stint at 
top law firms, the stint at enforcement agencies, maybe back and forth between the two. And that leads me to wonder, are there any extensions for this concept of performance blind spots that might also apply earlier in that course of honors in in a, a compliance elite's career where somebody is working as a white collar defense lawyer or they're working at an enforcement agency and maybe they've performed well themselves all this time and do you see the potential for that performance blind spot to manifest there as well? It's interesting. I thought about that. Yeah. So I think it, it depends who you are and at what stage of the game you're getting in, if you will. Okay. So the CCO is kind of, you know, the whole point of the compliance function is that you're housed there. So you're there. There is no before or after. It's just one long iterative pro- you know, process, right? It's this dynamic process that's going on all the time. It's a little different once you get outside of the firm, right? So, for example, you take a prosecutor. I'm not sure that is playing the same role, the prosecutor, right? Because the prosecutor gets the case after some huge compliance scandal has blown up. So there, I'm not sure that performance blindness is a problem because you're sort of seeing the mistakes after they were made. And I don't know that that's manifesting in the same way. I do think it could matter. And to the same extent, I don't think it would have the same problem for if you're talking about a corporate law firm and you've got a white collar attorney who's, again, representing the firm after the bad things have already happened. That too, I think, isn't necessarily manifesting itself in quite the same way. On the other hand, right, so this is where it matters. If you're talking about a regulator, right, and the regulator has more of an iterative relationship with the company, then yeah, maybe there is something there. And if you're also talking about, and I know you write about this, Andrew, in your own work, if you want the prosecutor or the enforcement attorney at, you know, some uh, federal agency or you want the white shoe law firm. So this is, you know, the corporate defense attorney, let's assume again, someone who's very high up, the partner, if you want them to play a greater role in figuring out root causes and you want to play a greater role in figuring out how to remedy things. So if you want them to play a greater role going forward in the remedial work, then you might argue that, yeah, you're going to have some of the replication of these performance blind spots. And one thing that your question brings up is, do performance blind spots sort of magnify each other almost in this weird group thing? Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is it's one thing when one elite person has a performance blind spot, but when we're all in a room together, does your performance blind spot sort of confirm my performance blind spot such that we all sort of convince each other that, yes, yes, we're right. There's no issue with this regime over here, right? In other words, you put several elites in a room and does that create even a greater risk that we're all going to have this collective performance blind spot? And I think that's an interesting question. Maybe in some ways there's the potential, you discuss the potential for that group think to set in. But I think as you mentioned at the top of that response, that there might be a potential for folks who've seen a lot of bad things in periodic engagements, whether they're enforcement attorneys or attorneys at law firms, perhaps that might be a countervailing effect where they've seen a lot of bad things. They might be more skeptical uh, going forward if they ascend that status as an elite CCO. Miriam, what key takeaways or open questions would you like our listeners to be thinking about from this conversation or from the article? I think there's this really interesting tension going on that the article is trying to get people to think about. There's this great desire for compliance 
to be important, to be real, if you will, not just cosmetic, and for it to be respected, right? In other words, if you go to any kind of conference in which, the, if you will, the compliance people are there, that's what they want, right? They want it to be a respected function of its own right that's taken seriously. And I think many of us do take it seriously. And so part of that calls for this idea of, you know, how else do you show you're taking something seriously if you're not, A, throwing a lot of money at it, and B, hiring really impressive people who have the kinds of backgrounds we've talked about. And maybe even, as you point out, Andrew, because they may have seen blowups and scandals in the past, they'll use that as their, you know, sort of they'll remember that, internalize that. But I think in this quest for showing seriousness, we forget that compliance is so incredibly complex and difficult and elusive as a goal. I don't see it as something that, you know, you can, you know, I'm definitely among those who think that non-compliance is something that every single firm is going to have to some degree. It's just going to sort of a background chronic condition. And so for that reason, I always worry that this kind of elitism will backfire, that we're missing something. And so I guess for the listeners, uh, what I would want listeners to think about is as this industry matures, how can we best uh, take into account the wonderful literature on cognitive dissonance, self-serving biases, all those kinds of things that we read about and that we know play a role uh, in companies in leading to people making mistakes and ultimately violating the law, how can we use that literature to better improve the compliance industry while also making sure that yes, compliance is serious, compliance is important, and compliance is respected and becomes, and it already is, becomes this permanent feature of the firm. Our guest today has been Miriam Baer, professor of law at Brooklyn Law School. We've been discussing her article, Compliance Elites, which is forthcoming in the Fordham Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes. Miriam, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.